Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Sheridan Titman, who is Professor of Finance and Chair of Financial Services at the University of Texas, Austin. He is also the Director of the Energy Management and Innovation Center at UT Austin. Welcome, Sheridan. Thank you. Yeah, so we want to talk about your paper, uh, The Geography of Value Creation. Uh, I found that fascinating. Uh, you say over the last 20 years, the stock market indicates that value creation has become heavily concentrated in a few headquarters cities. At the same time, firms in value-creating cities have experienced declines in their profitability due to large increases in wages and rents. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, folks who know um, the Silicon Valley or Boston. Uh, th- this, is, uh, this is a very obvious uh, thing to internalize. Um, I would think, um, but um, so, so you go back and you look at data all the way from 1980s. Yes, yeah. Right? yeah. And so, so there are two things going on here. One is profitability, as you say, and the other is essentially the value of the firm uh, that you show in the in the paper that that is shared by a lot of participants in the market. Right? You want to talk a bit about sort of the methodology and the data that you use. Okay, okay. So the, the main thing that we're interested in in this paper is sort of the, the market value of companies relative to their book values, which we're using as a measure of value creation. So the book value in some sense is a measure of um, investment in the firm, um, things that the firm has done to spend money to create value, and then their market cap, um, the value of all their outstanding securities um, is um, a measure of value. And so the ratio can be viewed as a measure of value creation. Okay, so what we're doing is um, basically doing an analysis where we're looking at this market to book ratio and we're comparing that to both um, the industries that the firms are in, 
and the headquarters of the cities um, where the firms are headquartered. And basically the finding is, is that this market to book ratio is very much dependent on which industries they're in. Okay, so biotech, um, tech industries in general have high market to book ratios. Um, but it also seems to be very highly tied to what city they have their headquarters in. And our, our big question is, um, you know, why is that true? And um, has that changed over time? Yeah, so I would imagine pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, as you say, uh, high technology, but there's a lot of intellectual property uh, created. A lot of the value of the firm is driven by patents and other IP aspects. Uh, for many of these firms, there isn't, book value is not really relevant uh, in some sense, right? Because equipment or PPE and all the stuff that we generally think about in book, va in book value um, are really noise for some of this IP, IP right. companies, right? Right, we try to correct for that by doing things like capitalizing the value of their R&D and adding that to book value. But um, you're correct that the, the book value is a very noisy measure of, of what we want. Um, so for a lot of what we're doing, we look directly at stock returns where we don't have that problem. And again, um, we're trying to understand to what extent these returns um, are related to the cities in which firms are headquartered. How do you control for Sheridan? Again, I'm thinking about Boston and San Francisco. Okay. Um, you know, there are, there are some very heavy concentrations of certain types of industries. So Boston biotechnology, San Francisco um, com computer technology. How do you account for the fact that these are the industries that really created value for the economy for the last three decades, right? I mean, it's fundamentally driven by these two industries. Um, yeah. So, so are we... I'm thinking to sort of the cost, cost and correlation issue. Um, is it because the cities are uh, focused on this heavily value-creating industries, or there is something special about the cities? Okay, we we think again. What's special about the cities is it's hard to basically pull out the secret sauce. Okay, in you know my best simple. Um, description of the secret sauce is, you know, talented workers. And what you said here is that these particular industries attract talented workers. Okay, that's, that's a big part of the story. Okay, but we're, in our analysis, okay, we're not basically just simply saying firms in Seattle did well over this time period because they're in the tech industry and the tech industry did well. Okay, what we find particularly interesting is if you look at Seattle firms that are not in the tech industry, okay, those firms did very, very well. So if you look at Seattle, you've got firms like Costco, Starbucks, um, Nordstrom's. Those firms all outperformed their industry. And we would argue that that's primarily because they're located in a city with a lot of talent, and it could be they're in a city with a lot of talent because Amazon is there and because Microsoft is there and other tech firms are there. 
So, so human resources really driving it in some sense, sort of a trickle down effect. <laughs> Is that the right term, uh, Sheridan? No. So you think about Amazon and Microsoft, there are a lot of engineers there. Uh, they're creating a lot of value and anything around those companies in Seattle, uh, in some sense, have a higher chance of getting better talent. Is that what you're finding? I think that's, yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. We wouldn't say trickle down, we'd say a, a spillover effect. Okay, so, and I think if you talk to guys at Starbucks, they might have a different twist on this. Starbucks would say, we're in Seattle, because we're in Seattle, we're a tech company, and um, we just happen to be a tech company that sells coffee. Um, our industry classification is that they're a, you know, a, a, a restaurant company, um, not a tech company, but because they're a techie restaurant company, they've been more successful than their competitors. Yeah, so, so you talk about sort of the clustering effect um, this is sort of a little different type of clustering, isn't it? So you have technology companies there in Seattle and you have uh, Starbucks and other companies, as you say, but they gravitate towards sort of a technology-driven process, technology-driven management, and so on. They become sort of technology companies. Right. Um, do we see the same thing in Boston? Do we see the same thing in sort of biotechnology arena? Okay, so Boston, I, I mean, I can't give you anecdotes. Um, I guess you've got Dunkin' Donuts in Boston, and they've done well also. Um, but, I, I, again, it's the, the, the story is a spillover, I guess, to some extent, from techie firms to firms in non-techie industries, and maybe those firms um, are techier than the typical firms in that industry. And they, they benefit because of that. Yeah. So the question would be, um, how did this happen? Um, how did San Francisco, Boston, Seattle, Minneapolis happen? Um, what, what, what was the initial conditions that, okay. that got them going? Okay. So we are, you know, trying to come up with a theory for, for why certain firms or certain cities um, are cities that attract talent. And we have two proxies that we look at. Um, one is the, the weather in these cities. And the second is the level of education in the cities, you know, going back to 1970. Okay, so we're basically saying, if I have a city that had reasonably good weather and it was a relatively educated city in 1970, okay, that city as it turns out, um, the firms in that city did incredibly well in the 1990s. That's that's what I would say is the main result of our paper. Yeah, so, so I was very interested to see the weather aspect of it. Um, we don't think about Minneapolis and Seattle are extremely uh, friendly weather. Uh, maybe right. Seattle has a bad, um, I don't know, people think of Seattle differently. Maybe that is not true in the statistics. Uh, but Minneapolis clearly um, has some bad weather. Yeah, Minneapolis is very cold. So I, I think you're right. Uh, we definitely have clear exceptions to that rule. Um, and it, again, it, it could simply be that this is driven by California. Boston has been successful. Boston doesn't have great weather. 
Okay, the education part seems to work very well. The most educated cities are the cities that have um, had firms that have done especially well. So, so if I understand this correctly, Sharon, so would you say in the 70s, cities who had higher education had sort of the, the right initial conditions to grow and right. it has a positive feedback effect, I would imagine, right? Once you once you start to grow, you're going to attract more people and then you go grow more and so on. And so no, you wanted those initial conditions, right? It, it's exactly a, um, a feedback effect. Um, what I call the virtuous cycle, okay? So you, um, you have the, the right initial conditions, you're attracting the most talent. Um, because you're attracting talent, um, you're attracting the right firms. Um, because you're attracting the right firms, you attract more talent, and so on and so forth, and the thing just builds. Okay, so that's kind of the story of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Silicon Valley happened to be, you know, in the right place, um, you know, back 30 years ago. Um, for a variety of reasons, you've got some successful tech firms in the 1970s in Silicon Valley. Um, that basically helps Stanford to become, you know, a top university. Um, that's attracting talent, it's attracting more firms. And pretty soon you've got a situation where you've got a company like Facebook started by people in Boston. They decide they need to be in Silicon Valley to actually get the company going. Um, so everything sort of converges on Silicon Valley and and you've got something there. Um, Seattle, I think, is a different story because Seattle was, a, again, a complete backwater. And um, in another one of my papers, we tell the story about um, Microsoft when it's starting. And it's starting in, Alba it's in Albuquerque, they decide they need to be in a larger city to grow the company. And um, Paul Allen and Bill Gates are deciding between going to Silicon Valley or going to Seattle. And um, Bill Gates wants to go to Silicon Valley. Paul Allen wins the argument and they move to Seattle. And as a result, you know, Microsoft becomes that catalyst that eventually attracts Amazon to Seattle. And then basically Seattle becomes a second Silicon Valley. But it's yes. the fact that gets us there. Yeah, so I was thinking as I read to the paper, Sheridan, um, Chicago is an interesting sort of an exception in some sense. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in Chicago, both north side and south side. I would mm -hmm. imagine it had a fairly highly educated population. Uh, so it had the right initial conditions. Um, right. But you know, I, I was doing this thought experiment, Sheridan. You know, if Hewlett and Packard were born in Chicago, will we be sitting here now thinking, you know, what is all this uh, snowy cities creating so much intellectual problem? <laughs> right. uh, is it as simple as that? I mean, you know, if you rewind time back uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, two guys, Hewlett and Packard, really started Silicon Valley. If they did not right. exist there. Would that, would that has happened? You know, it's questionable, I think. No, I, I again, um, Silicon Valley basically, you know, has the right conditions. 
Um, again, I would still argue you've got the good weather and um, you've got Stanford there. And so you've got an ability to attract, you know, very educated people and, um, and they're lucky. Um, they get, you know, Hewitt Packard to start there. You've got um, Intel and the, you know, the, the initial guys doing um, chips there. And so it sort of builds on itself and everything sort of takes off. Now you can make the same argument that maybe um, in Evanston, Illinois, um, you know, you could have had the right people to start the right companies. And, uh, you know, Evanston could have been Silicon Valley and Northwestern could have turned into Stanford. I, I think that's all possible. So this is where the weather hypothesis becomes quite an interesting thing to really test. Um, is, is, you know, in the decision processes of young people, educated people making a location decision, you're arguing that weather is, is an important consideration in that decision. I, I think it's part of it. I'm not saying it's the whole story. I think the other part to talk about in terms of the West Coast is it may have been more friendly for immigrants. Okay, so um, I think to a large extent, um, the programming talent in Silicon Valley, a lot of it is, is Asian. And it might have simply been that the Asians are more comfortable coming to California than coming to Chicago. Yeah, that also has a positive feedback effect, right? Once you get to a critical size, Right. The next immigrant coming in um, maybe, you know, um, selects uh, an, an area where there are more immigrants um, than otherwise. So once once you get the the system going, it, it has so many different positive feedback effects that you can stop it. Right. But again, it may simply have been that to attract the, you know, Asian talent, you needed warmer weather because a lot of these people are coming from, you know, warmer climates themselves. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's possible. I, a lot of people don't realize this, but the computer industry actually originally started in Minneapolis. Um, so it's a historical accident that Minneapolis is kind of a techie city, um, but there were firms that started in Minneapolis in the 1950s, um, I guess, so the one that's left there is Cray, but Cray, you know, came originally from computer, not from control data. There was a company called ERA. Um, these were Minneapolis companies. And for whatever reason, um, a lot of that talent migrated out of Minneapolis and went to California. Um, I would argue that part of that was um, due to weather. Um, my father was actually in the computer industry in Minneapolis, and he said he only lasted a year, and um, it was too cold for him, and he moved to California. So <laughs> that's my anecdote. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, you know the feedback effect and luck um, is clearly you know one of the elements that's quite important. Yeah, and things have gone the other direction too, right? I, I can't remember the cities, but uh, like Kansas City or Hartford or Providence here in the Northeast, things have sort of gone in the other direction for some of the cities too, right? 
Oh, sure. I mean, Detroit is a, probably the best example. Um, you know, you've got a booming city because of the auto industry. Again, you've got that same positive feedback effect that's basically drawing talent to Detroit. And then as it's going down, the you've got the negative feedback effect that's basically reversing the process. So I guess industry concentration is potentially a big risk factor for a thriving city in the sense that if that industry becomes irrelevant for whatever yeah. reasons, new innovation, new technology, new ways of living, then you sort of, once the, once the outflow starts, you can't stop it. You can't replace it, I think. It is, it is sort of continuous. Yeah, so the, there's a big difference between Silicon Valley and Detroit. Okay, so Detroit was basically where you would go for innovation in the auto, auto industry. Okay, but there wasn't big spillovers from automobiles to other types of industries. So Detroit was gonna live or die based on the automobile. Okay, so Silicon Valley was different because it was a type of tech talent um, that could be applied to other things. Okay, so if you look at like Tesla, it's an auto company. Okay, but Tesla chose to basically start in Silicon Valley rather than Detroit. Okay, because they're basically wanting to develop new technology and the new technology was going to be closer to what people were thinking about in Silicon Valley rather than what they were thinking about in Detroit. Um, and the ability of Elon Musk and the Tesla people to attract talent was gonna be greater in Silicon Valley than in Detroit, okay? So if you're in Detroit, you're only able to attract talent in the auto industry, while Silicon Valley, you know, was placed to attract talent in all sorts of different industries. Okay, but, but, but they would all have something of tech in common. Yeah. Detroit. Okay, so if you're in Detroit, you're only able to attract talent in the auto industry, while Silicon Valley, you know, was placed to attract talent in all sorts of different industries. Okay, but, but, but they would all have something of tech in common. Yeah, but, but there's a recent phenomenon, Sheridan. It appears that there is an outflow um, I don't know, not not specifically uh, Silicon Valley, but California in general is losing a lot of people. They have been losing people for the last seven years. Right. Some of the tech companies moving into Austin, where you sit. Um, so what what is the phenomenon? Uh, this is sort of a, a, you know, kind of contemporary phenomenon. How do you explain that? Okay, well, again, talking about California, I mean, there's a lot going on in California. Um, I don't want to talk right now about things like taxes, um, which is one of the reasons why we're, we're, we're seeing people migrating out of California and moving to Texas. Um, but let's just sort of stick to costs and talent. Okay, so at some stage, um, it's going to be very costly to operate in you know, one of these talent hubs because if everybody wants to be there, it's gonna become very expensive to do business there. Okay, so that's sort of what's happening in Silicon Valley. And that's actually something that we see in our data. Okay, in our data, we're seeing that these firms in these locations 
we're seeing that their market values are going up a lot um, because they're innovating. Um, but at least temporarily, their profits are not increasing nearly as quickly because the cost of doing business gets higher and higher. Mm. Okay, so from what I'm seeing here in Austin is that it used to be the case that if you were a programmer in Silicon Valley and you're a pretty good programmer, um, a lot of these guys are making $300,000 a year. And so the amazing thing is that you could be making $300,000 a year in, um, you know, Menlo Park, and um, you still can't afford a place to live. You can't raise a family in um, Menlo Park on $300,000 a year. So a lot of those guys are, are wanting to, you know, move to Austin. Okay, where the cost of living is much lower. Okay, now the what was happening historically was that if you want to be really at the top of your game, and these are the really, really top programmers, the guys that are making a million dollars a year, okay, you need to um, be in Silicon Valley. And if you're, you know, one of the lower level programmers that aspires to be at the top level, you want to be in Silicon Valley. Okay, so what we're seeing just in the last one to two years is kind of a flipping where a lot of these top guys are basically moving to Austin. And then you're, you're basically seeing Austin becoming a talent magnet in the same way Silicon Valley was. Okay, again, it's the same virtuous circle. Um, Austin is attracting a little bit more tra talent as Austin attracts more of this talent, it makes it more attractive for more people to come to Austin. And then you're seeing a lot of migration from California now to Austin as a result of that. Yeah, okay. I was really uh, interested in, so, so you, you, you talk about your profitability of the firm, a firm profitability declining for a variety of reasons. The total value created is shared by employees, shared by real estate, whatever, the costs go up. Right. And so the firm's profitability declines, in, let's say in Silicon Valley, but their market value continues to climb. And so it has to be that the market expects uh, these firms to create tremendous amount of future value right. for, for whatever reasons. And um, this is not in the paper, but uh, I, I want to get your perspective on this, uh, Sheridan. Is it because there are firms there that, that have monopoly power? <laughs> is that where the value is coming from? I think they have to have some monopoly power. Otherwise, all these profits are going to be competed away. Um, and I, again, I think a lot of it is um, investors looking into the future. So you're looking at Amazon, and Amazon is not making high profits right now. But everyone thinks that Amazon is positioning it itself so it's going to make huge profits in the future. And I think you're right. That has to come from monopoly power. Okay, so again, we're basically rewarding these companies um, because we think they're innovative. And um, in some sense, innovation means that I'm going to do something that's relatively unique. And if it's relatively unique, I'm going to have market power. Yeah, it's a slippery slope in the sense that if you look at the big companies in Silicon Valley, they are big. 
they're truly big. Right. And so, so one could argue they're monopolies coming from scale. Now, they were innovative companies at some point in time, and scale now got them to a position that they have huge monopoly power. And one could argue, uh, I don't have any data on it, but, but one could argue that almost all the value now is coming from scale-based monopoly, not, not innovation. If, if that were okay, true, but, it, but it's from prior innovation. Prior innovation, yeah. Yeah. So if, so if that were true, what would be sort of the market dynamics going forward? You know, um, so suppose there is regulation, let's say, you know, people are looking at these firms and saying they, they, they look like utilities rather than technology companies. Uh, should they be really be regulated? Yeah, if something like that happened, do you think Silicon Valley is at risk? Um, I don't think so. Um, I mean, Silicon Valley may be at risk just simply because California is being poorly run and it's just gotten too expensive to do business in Silicon Valley. I think the, in terms of regulation, um, Silicon Valley, you know, we're talking about regulation of Google and Facebook and Amazon and maybe Microsoft. We're talking about a, a small number of companies. Um, I think what's basically making Silicon Valley and Seattle um, so relevant going forward is that that's still the place to be for a, a younger, innovative company. And they're still going to want to be in, in those locations, I think. Yeah. So I guess for a young, innovative company, there are two needs. One, one are employees, talented employees, another is capital. Right. And so, so I guess there is also a positive network effect on capital. Um, you know, venture capital funded firms, the amount of venture capital coming out of California and uh, Boston uh, are significantly higher than any other part of the country. And yeah. so if you're, if you're starting a firm, you say, I'm going to go to places where there is capital plenty available. I, I think there's, there's absolutely no question that the capital is available in California, Silicon Valley. Um, I'm seeing people in Austin saying that's not as big a disadvantage being in Austin as it used to be. Um, that for a lot of these startup companies, they don't need huge amounts of capital. And so the point is, if I need to raise $5 million and I have a good idea, you know, I could do it in, in Austin um, as easily as I could do it in California. Um, that didn't used to be the case. It used to be that, you know, it used to be the case that I had to be in California, but that may be changing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the paper is really about geography, location advantages. Right. Um, as we look forward, um, and COVID-19 might have accelerated this, aren't we, aren't, aren't we making geography irrelevant for the future? I certainly wouldn't say it's irrelevant. Um, and it, I can tell stories for um, how it can make places like Seattle and, um, and Menlo Park even more valuable than before. Um, the story for, you know, the advantage um, that technology is going to have on a company like Apple or 
um, the smaller companies in Silicon Valley is that it used to be the case that the cost of doing business in, you know, in the Bay Area was incredibly high just because the real estate was incredibly high for my employees. So I have to pay this guy $400,000 a year because, you know, he has to spend a couple of million dollars to buy a house and it's very expensive for him to live there. Well, either that or commute for two hours. Um, I think what we might see in the future is people are going to live farther from where they work, um, but come in just two or three days a week. And that's going to make it easier to continue to do business in, in these very high cost areas. So it can go either way. Um, there's a huge advantage of working in a, in a place like um, the Bay Area if I'm in the tech industry because I can hop from job to job and that's got to be very valuable um, for me as an employee that I'm not basically stuck in this company um, where I can't move and I have no bargaining power with my employer. So I, I don't think that's going to change um, when people are doing more work over Zoom. I think that's going to continue and doing more of my work over Zoom makes it easier for me to live in these higher class areas because I can live farther from where I work. Yeah, that sounds to me that it's some sort of a critical size issue. So if I have 100 companies in one area as opposed to 10, right. and I'm going into the 100 company place, I have a higher option value in terms of switching from one to the other. Right. And so once you get to a critical size, I can, I guess you have a higher probability of maintaining that size or continue to increase that size. Um, and that's what we are seeing in the data, right? I mean, the, the more dominant cities become more and more dominant. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, what you're saying is I would like to be located in a liquid labor market. It gives me more bargaining power. It gives me... I'm going to learn from more people that I'm meeting. I, I think there's big advantages of that. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, I, I, I don't see that sort of in the post-COVID world, the fact that we can do all this communication over Zoom um, is going to kill off these cities. Yeah, I mean, it would be you know, a very interesting policy question um, for, let's say, a small, small city in the Midwest is say, you know, how do I start this engine, um, you know, from <laughs> a fairly low position? Right. Is there a magic formula that uh, that I could utilize? Once you start it, you know, you have a lot of positive network effects. But what you're saying is that, you know, generally you need good weather, generally you need good educated people, you need reasonable amount of capital, um, and so on. So, so I guess, you know, the first thing you cannot do anything about the weather uh, but right. education, you can do something about capital. You can do something about. So, is there sort of a way for a small city to jumpstart its um, its ecosystem somehow? Well, it seems like you need sort of a seed there to to start. Um, so, if you're asking me, is there anything that Boulder, Colorado, can do? Um, I think the answer is probably yes. I could see Boulder becoming a you know very important tech hub if they want to do that. Um, if you're asking about Wichita, Kansas, um, I think that's going to be very difficult. 
because of because of low initial conditions to start with. Right? You don't have the initial conditions. Uh, you don't have a good university there. Um, yeah, you see, it's it's not a city where you can imagine a lot of immigrants moving to. Mm. Um, I, I was also wondering, Sharon. I, I don't think this is the right way to think about it. Um, when you have a lot of space, like in the Midwest. It is a little bit of a negative um, effect in the sense that when you have a lot of space, you gravitate toward, let's call it low value industries, uh, because to run transportation, to run, you know, heavy manufacturing, you need a lot of space. Right. And so if you don't have space, you cannot do those industries. You, know? <laughs> you have to do biotechnology or uh, uh, computer tech. Um, do you think you know places like Chicago is suffering from space? I haven't thought of it that way. Um, again, I think Chicago um, and Illinois as a state just has a lot of problems, um, political problems. They've you know they've been running a huge deficit. Um, they've got bad weather. There's a lot sort of that causing problems in Chicago. And I, I don't see the abundance of space as being a big problem for them. And you mentioned taxes. So taxes is something that cities can definitely think about. Um, and, and so Austin clearly has an advantage uh, right. in the tax arena, right? That's definitely true. That's definitely um, true. I mean, again, that's just sort of a lucky thing is that we've got an oil industry in Texas that pays a lot and um, pays for a lot. And um, as a result, we don't have a state income tax. And that definitely gives us an advantage over California. Yeah. Um, I know that you looked at data in sort of two different regimes, 1995, sort of a break point between the two. Um, did you see any difference in the pre-95 and post-95? Oh yeah, we think that the, the mid '90s is is sort of a very important breakpoint, um, and that's kind of the focus of how we were thinking of things. Uh, you may have remembered a book by Thomas Friedman that was written around um, 2002, I think, um, where he basically says the world is flat um, because of improvements in technology. We can live anywhere, and I can basically live in Montana and telecommute to Silicon Valley. So, you know, being in places like Silicon Valley aren't going to be particularly important. Okay, so what we do is we look at um, market to book ratios and stock returns um, over time, and we see there's a big break around 1993, 1994, 1995, where the firms in these particular what we call glamour cities do extremely well over, you know, the, the late 1990s. Um, and again, our interpretation is um, over that period, it looks like um, the world's not becoming flat. Um, the world's becoming what they say spiky in the sense that being in the right place becomes especially important. Now it's possible, and we talked about this a little bit a few minutes ago, that Thomas Friedman's right, but he was just way too early. And telecommunication technology um, 20 years ago really wasn't that good. 
now it's pretty good, and maybe the world will become flat going forward. But there seem to be, um, you know, uh, big advantages of proximity. Um, there's big advantages of being in a thick labor market where there's lots of firms that could be hiring you and basically being able to hang out with lots of other smart people that are doing similar things. And that seemed to have gotten a lot more important than the 90s. And we've seen no evidence that it's become less important over time. Yeah, but so so you talked about profitability of the firm, um, you know, not rising or, or flat or even declining in these environments. So a lot of the values competed away to employees and real estate and, and those types of things. In the and short so, run, in the short run. But we think in the long run, these firms are capturing them a big part of that benefit. In the, in the stock prices? Well, the stock prices are, are basically reflecting the long run. Yeah. And so the stock market is saying these guys are going to capture that benefit in the long run. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a nice situation to be in because the raw materials, people and, and uh, talent uh, are getting heavily compensated. And so that flow is not, not declining. Um, right. And so the firms can continue to tap onto that. Um, but they, they're not really showing income, income statement numbers, but the market doesn't really care. Uh, it's basically saying, forget it, you know, you keep losing money like Amazon for 10, 15, 20 years, and the stock price still continues to climb. Right. I mean, the market could be wrong, um, but that is what the market is saying. Yeah, yeah. Do you see in the data... When did you stop the data set? Uh, I think of uh, 2016 or 2017. Okay. Did you see any other breakpoint post-1995? Things are sort of normalizing or doing well, we something? Look carefully, we look carefully to see if there's any reversal of the trend. And we see no evidence of reversal. Okay, mm -hmm. so the, the firms in these glamour cities, um, their stock prices go up a lot in the late 1990s, regardless of their industry. So this is industry adjusted. So on an industry adjusted basis, firms in these cities do extremely well. And even though the tech sector reverses after 2000, um, we see no evidence of a reversal for firms in those particular cities. Hmm. There's one other thing that is sort of positive network effect, and that is when the stock prices do really well, you're creating millionaires. Right. And and those guys go out and start their own companies. So there is sort of a underlying force that keeps creating new companies because you're also creating very wealthy people. I think that's true. Um, again, the formation of um, new businesses seem to be very much concentrated in these small number of cities. Why do you think, so if the tax effect that you mentioned between Texas and California is so uh, skewed in favor of Texas, right? why do you think these companies not taking advantage of it? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't they at some point say, I think Tesla did move their HQ to Austin, didn't they? Right. Um, Oracle's moved to Austin. Um, Tesla's moved to Austin. Um, Charles Schwab 
um, a San Francisco company moved to Dallas. Um, CBRE, uh, you know, the biggest real estate company in the world, um, they were located in Los Angeles. They've moved to Dallas. So we're seeing quite a bit of migration of firm headquarters from California to Texas. Um, so it is happening. There's no question of that. Is the HQ migration somewhat cosmetic uh, from a you know sort of a, a tax advantage, financial advantage? Are the people staying back in California? Is that what's happening? Um, I think you're seeing a lot of people staying in California, but we're seeing um, the growth in employment in Texas. Okay, so um, Oracle, I'm sure has more people in um, Silicon Valley than they have in Austin. But I think they're hiring a lot of people in Austin. And um, I don't know if Austin will become bigger than California, but the growth is much more in Austin than it is in California. And then you're seeing like Facebook. Facebook is you know not moving out of Silicon Valley, but Facebook is adding thousands of new employees in Austin. Google is adding thousands of new employees in Austin. So there's a there's a, a lot of migration out of California into Texas. Um, you were looking at sort of the HQ location as a sort right. of the primary uh, driver. Yeah. Um, in a very distributed company, uh, why is the HQ that, that important? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, because a lot of these companies They've got workers all over the world, not just in their headquarters. Our hypothesis, and I don't have firm data to back this up, but our hypothesis is that the most creative people and most important strategic thinkers of the company, the people developing the new products, um, sort of the leadership of the companies, for the most part, are sitting at the headquarters. And so that's our idea is that you want your creative people basically located in the most creative locations. Right, but if, if those, you know, those people are senior uh, creative people, they might be coming from all around the world. Right. Uh, and so, so then it's sort of counter to the location advantage in the sense that if I'm going to go to Berlin and New Delhi to, to hire talent, um, it doesn't really matter if they're sitting in Silicon Valley. Well, the point is, um, I can better attract them to my company if I'm in Silicon Valley. Okay, I mean, the firms do the, the other thing as well. Um, I had a panel once with CFOs of major companies asking them various questions. One of my questions was, um, you know, how do you think about, um, you know, your, your overseas locations? Um, and the answer that they all said was, we moved to these overseas locations because we want to attract the best overseas talent. Okay, so one of the companies said we opened up uh, an office in Beijing. Um, not that we needed to be in Beijing for business reasons, but if we wanted to attract the best talent in China, we should be in Beijing. Yeah, so if, if my HQ is in Silicon Valley, Sharon, if I understand this correctly, I could then say to my people in different parts of the world, 
I can promote them the the best of the best of the my employees and give them an incentive to move to Silicon Valley. So I can give right. them weather, I can give them education, I can you know give them all sorts of things, right? So that is yeah. um, that is an attraction that that I can sell. Is that is that one of the primary drivers? I think it helps. I think it definitely helps. So uh, one thing that I've looked at just very recently is H-1B visas. Um, and these are visas that are given to individuals that are very highly educated. Um, and you see that a very, very large percentage of the people with H-1B visas are basically going to three different cities. Um, one is Silicon Valley, two is Seattle, and the third is New York because of the financial industry. Okay, so you, you're not seeing a lot of um, people with H-1B visas taking jobs in Chicago, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, the location seems to matter um, for attracting the best foreign um, workers, I think. Right, right. And New York doesn't have weather either, but there has to be other things there that, that might be. Well, if you're European, you want to be in New York. I think if you're an Asian, you want to be uh, in California more. But, um, right. And you mentioned Washington, D.C. in the paper, if I remember, Sheridan. Um, right. Washington has become attractive as well. Yeah. So so what is causing it? Is there sort of a nugget of an industry in Washington, D.C. that is it's a defense or something like that? Um, again, I, I can't answer that. I don't know Washington, D.C. that well. Um, it's just that um, we've noticed that, that, that you are getting, you know, some successful firms in Washington, D.C., um, again, it's a edu very educated city. Um, it's impossible to take out the, you know, the influence of being in the capital. Um, for a lot of firms, there's some benefits from that. It's not something I've studied. Yeah. So at least, at least on the surface, if you have good weather and you have a big um, university, you actually yeah. have a pretty good you know, sort of initial foundational elements that yeah. you can start the engine with. Yeah, and I, I guess what you would say is a lot of it is just luck. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Hewitt and Packard were from Stanford and they started their company. You know, the fact that Stephen Jobs was um, born in Palo Alto, um, I guess there's some random luck there. Um, you know, it's very difficult to tell. Yeah, I mean, the, so, the one thing that we do know is that once you've got these initial conditions, um, the thing can grow with right. a feedback effect. Yeah, so from a policy perspective for a city, um, you can aid that with taxes, perhaps. You can aid that with sort of uh, promoting education at some level, things like that, yeah. right? There are things that cities could do to, to restart. Yeah. Now, again, that's something that, you know, all over the world, the cities are asking that question. Um, and they all think that they can do something like that. But very few cities have been successful trying to replicate Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's also a zero-sum game, uh, isn't it? I mean, there are only so many people. Right. And so... Um, once the race is well established, it looks like, sure, and the race is well established, there are two, three winners in this race that are so far ahead 
it's really difficult to catch up in a zero-sum game. Yeah, but I think we are seeing some of that. I think we're seeing the talent dispersing now. Um, I think we're seeing here in Austin, we're seeing Austin getting a much greater share of that kind of talent. My guess is that Denver Boulder is getting more of that talent. I think we're seeing Nashville getting more of that. So the talent is getting dispersed again. Um, again, I don't know how that's going to play out, but um, it's going to be something interesting to watch. So in conclusion, Sheridan, do you have some sort of a federal policy um, ideas? Uh, at least intuitively, it feels to me that a few cities, high concentration of few cities from a country perspective may not be optimum. If that I totally agree with that. I, <laughs> okay. I, I've seen research papers that claim that we've got all these constraints on growth in Silicon Valley and that the GNP of the country would be much higher if, um, if we relaxed those constraints and allowed Silicon Valley to triple in size. Um, because, you know, because of that feedback, you know, you get 20 million people in Silicon Valley you're going to get all this great innovation um, and we'll have nirvana as a result of that. I'm not convinced that that's true. I think it might be better to have, you know, multiple tech hubs. Yeah, I was going in that direction. So I was asking, you know, is there a policy that says, you know, uh, can we distribute this, this kind of uh, heavy concentrations in, in two or three cities? in some way across the country? Is there some sort of a policy that you could pursue? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and again, there's certainly not a consensus that that's a good thing to do. Um, but um, the question is, maybe it's a good thing. And then the question is, you know, how we want to think in terms of tax policy. Um, and again, yeah, that's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for you. Yeah, I was just uh, peripherally thinking, you know, one idea might be, you know, you get a BMW or a Mercedes to to, to kickstart something um, somewhere. You know, I think so, things like that be tried in Kentucky and uh, and elsewhere, right? But it hasn't really gone a lot further. Right? Yeah, so, so an interesting question that I thought about when Amazon was looking for a second headquarters. Um, and so the question was, what was Amazon looking for? Were they looking for a place where it'd be low cost for them to operate, or would it be a place where they can attract talent? Um, as it turned out, you know, they chose the two most expensive places where they could locate. One was New York City, um, this Long Island city just um, across the river from Manhattan um, in Queens, and this Crystal City in Virginia, which was a suburb of Washington, D.C. Two very high-cost places to locate. And why did they choose those places? It's because these are places where they could attract the talent. Now, from the point of view of public policy, um, I could see that the U.S. government could have subsidized them to move into Detroit. I think they could have done more good going to Detroit, where we could have said, okay, Detroit has all this infrastructure. 
is underutilized. Um, it's a city that needs some help. Um, maybe we should basically get Amazon to move into Detroit and the federal government would subsidize that with a small amount of money. That seems to, that goes along with your story of distributing the talent rather than having it too concentrated in the same places. Yeah, if I understand it correctly, Sharon, they had some sort of a competition between cities. Cities were right. bidding, bidding for getting the, the the HQ, right? And they had to basically come up with tax incentives and so on. And right. They, so, uh, so the whole problem with that is, it you know, the rich getting richer. You know, the cities that are are rich um, can outcompete the cities that are not rich to to bring in Amazon. From a public policy perspective, that may not be giving us the right answer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, excellent. This has been great, Sheridan. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, this is interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.